Good morning. I want to thank the worship team. They're beautiful. Thank you, sweetie. Yeah, I sometimes take for granted the devotion of folks who are vocally and instrumentally gifted, and not only that, but they're worshipers, and they lead us. So grateful. Shall we pray? Well, Holy Spirit, I really like talking to you, and uh, you are so available. You are so available. And you've been here from the beginning, from eternity past. You are eternal and all-knowing and everywhere present and all-powerful, and you are agape, just like the Father and just like the Son. And yet here, you're here now, and you teach us, and you reveal truth, and you use people who are available to you. Would you help me to be available to you this morning? And would you help each of us to receive? Lord, maybe we can receive something akin to the manna, Lord, that the people of Israel went out and they gathered up and it gave them sustenance and nourishment and it saw them through the hard times of the wilderness. That would be wonderful. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Three texts for today. One is... One that Nicholas mentioned last week, and he did introduce a series. He's going to continue that series. Hopefully this will all serve to prepare us more for the celebration of Jesus' birth. John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist was looking at Jesus. They were cousins. And I suspect they didn't spend a lot of time with each other growing up. Each had an unusual childhood. John was a prophet. Jesus said he was the most outstanding of all of the prophets, born of, born of woman. And he completed the old covenant. And his job, according to scripture, was to be a forerunner of God's Messiah, God's promised one. And he saw Jesus, but he didn't just see his cousin, he saw Jesus as something in particular. And he said this, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold. I thought Nicholas did a great job last week of unpacking what that word means. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a little bit. But he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold. This is not just my cousin. This is the Lamb of God. And another text, 1 John 3, 1, tells us something else that would be good for us to behold. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I want to build on what Nicholas shared last week. I want to consider these questions. No judgment intended in asking them, none at all. If Christmas weren't commercialized, if there was no holly, no Christmas trees, no Christmas music playing in stores, no special festive displays, no candy canes or cookies or hot cocoa decorations or the usual things created by the advertising industry, would Christmas still be special to us? You have to answer that question for yourself. 
In other words, would we still appreciate the reason for the season? Do you sense that you need to have the wonder of the real meaning of Christmas restored to you? I think I need that every year because I know I get distracted, I suspect you do too, by all of the preparation that has become necessary to celebrate Christmas and to make it special. Restoring the wonder of Christmas happens when we realize that the wonder of Christmas is a person, Jesus. And it happens when we appreciate the incarnation. Nicholas, I thought, did a good job of unpacking that, and, and it merits review. What is the word incarnation? What does it mean? It means that God became a person. God became incarnate. He became a human being. God. Who is God? The Bible says God is spirit. He's spirit. He's invisible. It says no one has ever actually seen him. That is, no one has actually ever laid eyes on him in his total unveiled glory. God has appeared to people in various ways in what we call theophanies. He's, he's reducing the impact of his glory so that it won't destroy us. It would be too much for a mere mortal to take in. But God is eternal. He has no beginning. He'll have no ending. It says he's all-knowing. There's nothing hidden from his sight. The Bible says all things are open and laid bare before him with whom he must give an account. He's all-powerful. It says all things are possible with God. God himself says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? He's everywhere present. At the same time, he's with us amidst our worst challenges. We need to appreciate the fact that God didn't remain distant because in his heart he's not aloof. He is our Father who is in heaven. He is transcendent, but thankfully he condescends. He became a person. He walked among us. Jesus Christ is not a reduced version of God. He was fully God and fully man, both simultaneously. I know I can't get my mind around that. I don't need to get my mind around it in order to experience the benefit of the incarnation. God became a person. He took on human flesh. He got tired. Jesus was so tired on one occasion when his disciples and he were in a boat on a sea that was experiencing a storm, and some of them were commercial fishermen, they were used to this type of storm, but this storm was so severe, it had them really worried, and Jesus fell asleep, and he was sleeping on a cushion in the middle of a storm. Must have been exhausted. And we read that he got, he got hungry. And we read that he, he was tempted in every way, in every way that you are tempted. In all ways, it says he was tempted. He didn't, he didn't capitulate to temptation, but he was tempted. He felt the, the pull of it, the attraction of it. This is God, not distant, not aloof. God present, God among us, God observable. In 1 John, John 
tells his readers, hey, I really know what I'm talking about because I'm going to tell you about what I've seen, what, what, what my, I've encountered. I'm an eyewitness to these things. The incarnation. The wonder of Christmas is restored to us. It happens when we realize the wonder of Christmas is a person, when we appreciate the incarnation, when we're intentional about beholding Jesus. What does it mean to behold Jesus? And you know, it's really important to understand that beholding Jesus isn't a one-time event. Beholding happens when we pay attention to something in a sustained way, as opposed to a mere glance. You might glance over your shoulder when you're driving to see if it's safe to move into another lane. You don't want to behold when you're doing that. But when you do behold, God wants you to take in the full scope of what he's revealing to you. God loves to reveal stuff. It says he reveals his secrets to those who walk with him in intimacy. He loves to share stuff. Jesus said to his followers, I'm going to share the stuff of the kingdom with you because you're my friends. And I share stuff with my friends. He loves to reveal more of himself, more about anything we need to know that's going to help us. Restoring the wonder of Christian Christmas happens when we behold him. And here's three things that today's texts instruct us to behold. We're to behold the Lamb. That's what John said. Behold the Lamb. Interesting choice of words, very intentional on John's part. He's referring to Jesus as the sacrifice. He understood. He understood that under the old covenant, he didn't think of it as the old covenant, it was the only covenant, really, that God had made with Israel. Under that covenant, God used a sacrificial system to help his people understand that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, and that an innocent animal needed to be sacrificed. Uh, an animal without blemish needed to be sacrificed in order to make available to people the forgiveness of sins. But in the New Testament's commentary on the Old Testament, it says, but the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sins. But the, the Old Testament says the sins of people of Israel were taken away. How, how could that be? Because God wasn't applying the, the blood of bulls and goats to the people who turned to him in repentance when a sacrifice was offered on their behalf. He was applying the blood of his son. You see, Jesus is, is referred to in the book of Revelation as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His blood always had what theologians would call efficacy, effectiveness. Today, we need to learn to behold the Lamb. Not just Jesus, but Jesus as the Lamb. It would be good to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand more fully the nature of the atonement, what it mean, means to have an offering made on your behalf, what it means 
to have Jesus offered on your behalf. His death on the cross was no accident of human history. It was planned. It was ordained by God. On that cross, Jesus bore, it says, the the sin of the entire world of every time period, every person, all of the evil. Think of the worst evil you've ever heard of. I'd say the things that the the Nazis did, the, the, the atrocities the Nazis performed on people. I'm not just talking about the extermination of people in gas furnaces. I'm talking about experiments that they did, so-called medical experiments. Cruel, cruel. You mean even their sins can be forgiven? Yes, yes, if they put their trust in Jesus. God forgives the inexcusable. Jesus suffered so that we could have confidence that our every sin, no matter how terrible the professional criminal word might be heinous, how heinous it is, it's like that's extreme evil. Behold the lamb, he takes away the sin of the world. And we're invited also to behold the manner of love with which we're loved. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love. Check this out, John is saying. Observe this and keep on observing it. Behold the manner of love with which the Father has loved us that we should be called the children of God. And then it says, and we are. We're the children of God. Behold that manner of love. And you know, I, uh, I repeat stuff. And it's, it's not because I'm lazy and ill-prepared, because it needs to be said again and again and again and again, because we need to keep hearing it. We need to hear the same truths. Would you agree with that? So I'm going to tell you again about God's love. Behold what manner of love. It's agape. That's the word that's used to describe God's love. There were at least three other words in the New Testament language of, of Koine Greek to describe a kind of love that people have. But agape was in its own category because it's divine and it's supernatural. It's supernatural. It doesn't, doesn't come from people. It's not of people. It's of God. And it's described as being unconditional, meaning that God loves you right now as you are without any change. God loves you unconditionally. How do I know this? The book of Romans says, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son to die for us. God's love. It's unconditional. I recommend. Tell yourself that every day. God loves me as I am and not as I should be. And God's love is inexhaustible. There is really nothing you can do to disqualify yourself from God's love. How do I know that? Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from it. John 17 tells us, that the Father loves us with the very quality of love with which he loved the Son, John 17, 23. God's love is impartial. The same love with which he loved Jesus, he loves you. God's love is non-intrusive. He won't just barge into your life. How do I know that? Revelation three twenty. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus said. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm gonna come in and we'll have a relationship with each other. 
God's love is non-coercive. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love doesn't insist on its own way. And another fact about love, it can be resisted. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says to, to the people who are listening to him, people who weren't receptive to the message of the gospel, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. You can resist God. You can resist his love. God does not force you to receive his love. He will not micromanage your life. He isn't even interested in it. it it's, it's not even, you know, in, in, in terms of the things that would tempt somebody, it doesn't tempt God in the least to micromanage. He cares intensely, but he also knows that real love can't happen if your love isn't volitional. You know, I see some couples here and, and some of you, I'm pretty sure, are actually in love with each other. If when you were dating, you could have put a computer chip in the person that you are now married to and influenced her to be attracted to you, in the long run, would that have really been satisfying? I don't think so. Most of us really want somebody who will want us for who we are and choose us. And you know that God chooses you. He invites us, of course, to choose too. Through Joshua, he said to the people of Israel, choose whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But God chooses us. Jesus said to his followers, you know, you didn't choose me. You might think you chose me. I chose you. God chooses you. He's attracted to you. You make his heart beat faster and faster. You're his creation. You're the object of his affection. Any person who touches you touches the apple of God's eye, Zechariah tells us. Behold what manner of love with which the Father loved us. Behold the agape. Behold that love. Get convinced by it. How does that happen? By asking the Holy Spirit to help you to believe, truly believe what he says about God's love. You see, do you know that belief is supernatural? Do you, know, do you know that belief is not something you can manufacture? Truly, you know, the New Testament teaches this. In Acts 3, a guy gets healed, and everybody's excited about it. People are running to the temple, the location where he was healed, and Peter describes how it happened he said he's received the faith to be healed. Then if you read in 2 Peter chapter 1, very, very first breath of Peter's writing, he says, I'm writing to the people who have received the same kind of faith that we have, that we apostles have. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the originator of your faith. He's the author of your faith. He's the source of your faith. He's the developer of your faith. You need faith? Go to Jesus. You need faith to see what God says about you? That God really is fond of you? Hard to believe because most of us are stuck looking at the worst of ourselves and saying, I'm in trouble again. I, I bet you bad stuff's coming to me because, I mean, I'm not that happy with myself. How happy could God be with me? I wonder if one of the reasons we sometimes we get to be a parent 
is to be able to understand a little bit better the unconditional love of God. I, I have a child who's hurt me and his ex-wife, his siblings, his late mother, and a whole host of other people very deeply. It's never affected my love for him. My heart breaks for the suffering, not just that he's caused, but the suffering of his own addiction. And there are times I, I, I wanted to hurt him physically. I mean, as a matter of fact, he threatened me. And I, old as I am, I said, buddy, I think I got one good one left in me. You want to find out? I'm game. I might have wound up in the hospital, but I didn't care. I've experienced the whole gamut of emotions. I've been furious with him, but it doesn't take but another moment, and I'm saying, God, have mercy on my beloved son. You, you cannot disqualify yourself from the love of God. What are you to behold? Behold the lamb. Behold the manner of love with which we are loved, and behold, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, behold the glory of the Lord. Let's read that text again. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Behold the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? I ask that question a lot when I look at a text in the next chapter of that book, 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that the glory of the Lord is seen in the face of Jesus. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Behold Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. You know, Joshua was told, meditate on the book of the law. Meditate on my word. God told him that if you meditate on it, you're going to have good success. Meditate. What does that word mean? Well, in Eastern religions, it basically means to put your mind in neutral. That's really dangerous because then you then subject yourself to all kinds of dark influences. But biblically, meditation is never about putting your mind in neutral. It's about putting your mind in drive and thinking specifically about a person, Jesus, because Jesus embodies the nature of God and the will of God. What is God like, this God that no human being has ever seen in his unveiled glory? He's just like his son. Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. There's no unchristlike feature to God. That means God is awesome. Do you know, there was never a person who asked Jesus for forgiveness who didn't get it. There was never a person who needed deliverance from dark powers and wanted it who didn't get it. There was never a person who requested a miracle of healing from Jesus who didn't get it. And then on top of that, here's an example of a miracle that I would call an entirely unnecessary miracle. No one's health was at, at stake. No one's mental health was at stake. No one's spiritual health was at stake. But somebody's dignity was at stake and they were at a wedding feast and they ran out of wine. That is a major social faux pas. 
You don't want to run out of, out of wine at a wedding feast. Not, not in near, ancient Near Eastern culture. And Jesus was there, and so was his mom. And his mom knew he could do something to make this situation worse. And he sounds reluctant at first, but she uses her influence. And she said to the servers, do whatever he says. Good advice. And he said, okay. He sees these big stone water pots, heavy things. Fill them up with water. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly what he sounded like, but that's my best impersonation of Jesus. I'm thinking he was pretty casual. I don't think he was doing the Barney Fife look. If you remember when Barney got proud of something, he kind of hitched up his pants and went, Stuck his tiny little chest out, probably 38 inches, probably weighed 95 pounds. I don't see Jesus doing that. He's probably saying very matter-of-factly, very casually, fill him up with water. I could only imagine what these, the wait staff was doing. Like, oh, okay, really? And then serve it, serve it. And the person, the first person to have a drink of that water turned into wine must have been, what are you, what are you saving this best wine for? This, you're supposed to serve the best wine on the front end of the party, then everybody drinks a little too much and you can serve them the bad wine later. And they won't even notice because they're going to be inebriated. That's what the text tells us. Jesus knew that wine was going to be misused. cared about someone's dignity. This is Jesus. This is his father. How do I know his father approves it? Because Jesus did it and he said, I only do what I see the father doing. That's all I do. I don't do anything else. I always live, he said, to please the father. It pleased the father to save someone's dignity. Behold that. What happens when we behold these things, everybody? If you behold the lamb, you get to experience peace with God. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. Not the peace of God. That text isn't talking about experiencing peace in a subjective sense. There's another Bible verse that addresses that. In Philippians chapter four, it says you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, you can let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But in Romans 5.1, Paul's talking about not the peace of God, but peace with God, because we've been at enmity with God. We've been, by birth, enemies of God. And Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ having been justified by faith, that is made righteous by faith. Wow. We get to experience that when we behold the Lamb. Get to experience every associated benefit that comes with salvation. Another thing we get to experience is we get to feel unconditionally loved. When we consider that we're actually called to behold the manner of love with which the Father's loved us, 
that will lead us eventually to feeling the love of God. Do you know that that's important to God? You know, some Christians get a little indigestion when you talk to them about the possibility that God might want them to feel better. Oh, I don't want to base my walk with Jesus on feelings. That's my impersonation of them too, you know. I mean, that's kind of how they sound to me. I don't want to base it on my feelings. Well, good. I mean, there's times when your feelings can mislead you. What if God wants you to feel joy? And he does. How do I know that? Because he said so. Jesus said, my joy, I want you to have. Is joy just a theological concept? Is that what the disciples got? Oh, that's cool, Peter. Hey, yeah, John, that's pretty cool. Okay, let's just file that away. Joy, huh? Mm-hmm. Great concept. Let's dig into it. Let's bust out a dictionary and, and, and look at the etymology, right? What does that mean? The origination of a word like that. Oh, joy. No, he wants you to experience joy. The kind of joy that is better than a joint. The kind of joy that's better than any chemical relief. Yeah, honestly, God is into joy. Joy to the world, we sing it, why? Because hopefully we'll experience the joy of Jesus. Wow, he gives it to the undeserving. He gives it to the broken and the disenfranchised. He gives it to failures. He gives it to people with addictions and mental health challenges and grumpy people. (laughs) He does. It's God. He's better than we are. He doesn't use the merit system. He's on the mercy plan. You want the merit system, oh boy, have fun with that. Have fun with that. He wants me to feel joy. He wants me to feel peace. My peace I give to you, he said. Not the kind of peace you're going to get in the world. My peace, I give you that peace. He wants you to have feelings so you feel better. I mean healing so you feel better. Deliverance so you feel freedom and you're free from the torment, the insanity that afflicts you. He wants you to feel his love. He wants you to feel his arms wrapped around you. He wants you to know he's fond of you. Wow. Imagine that. I'll tell you, when we get convinced of that, as we get, and it'll happen incrementally, which is beautiful, that's fine. Sometimes it'll be big downloads. One of the, one of the benefits is we won't take ourselves so seriously. Wow. We'll feel unconditionally loved. We will be incrementally transformed into Christ's image. The last text we looked at says, as we behold, we will become. And it says, from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold him, we will become. We will become more like him, transformed. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, Son of God, God the Son, worker of miracles, hear our cry. Cleanse us afresh with your blood, please. Wash away every stain, every defilement, all the grime. 
everything that interferes with my relationship with you. Open my heart to receive. Open my heart to behold. Help me to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus, there's no special steps. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to give us a dime. You don't have to change the way you live. Just say, I want Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. You might be tired of being the person you've been. You might be disappointed in yourself. It would be great to invite Jesus to wash away your sin and and make you a new person. Wouldn't that be great? And maybe you're a veteran, a veteran Christian. You've been here a long time, maybe not here, but you've been in the kingdom. You've been in the faith for a long time. But maybe you need an upgrade. Do you know that God's into upgrades? Yeah, every day. So how about you say, Jesus, I need an upgrade. I need an upgrade. I need you to help me to receive more of your goodness and your kindness, your mercy, your love. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?